This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The World Today. I'm Sally Sara. This Monday, an inquiry launched into the devastating floods that ravaged northern New South Wales. And keeping track of racist behaviour, a register set up so Indigenous Australians can record their experiences of racism. Having this will discourage racism in the workplace. I don't think I've ever worked anywhere where there wasn't any form of racism. It really affects like our overall mental health and our household when we're told these things aren't happening. It feels like we're being ghastly. We begin today in Adelaide and South Australia's new Premier Peter Malinowskis has been sworn into office and is on track to form a majority government. The Labor leader is credited for running a discipline campaign targeting a range of issues, including ambulance ramping. Some in federal Labor circles say it's a result that will have the federal government trembling. South Australian state political reporter Leah McLennan joins me now. Leah, good afternoon. What is Peter Malinowskis promising as his priority as he now takes office? Well, as you um, said in your introduction there, Sally, health has been one of the biggest focuses of the campaign and that is obviously something that he's going to want to prioritise as he comes into government. He um, has promised to fix the ramping crisis, as he puts it, in his first term, but he has put some nuance around that, saying that that doesn't mean going back to zero ramping, it just means to go going back to the same amount of ramping we had um, when Labor was last in office in 2018. But, of course, that has been a, a massive issue during this campaign with unions getting behind Labor, that's health unions, the ambulance union, the nurses union, talking about people, even cases where people have died just waiting for an ambulance to get to them. Um, so some of those cases are now under investigation. But, of course, um, today we have had... Uh, Peter Malinowskis officially sworn in as Premier. So some other things at the top of his list are going to be organising his shadow cabinet, setting up his departments, how he wants them to set up. He said, of course, um, some of those top public servants are probably going to go, the ones that were put in there by the Liberal government. So they're the kinds of things that are going to take up some of his time in the next few days. And I think we've got some of what um, Peter Malinowskis had to say today um, some audio of that here now. I take this responsibility incredibly seriously. I approach it with a genuine sense of humility um, that the people of South Australia entrusted me to lead them, um, but also with a very firm resolve, a resolve to deliver on our policy, a resolve to use the power and authority invested in my government to do good for people, particularly those people that aren't always represented with a powerful voice around Parliament House. That's the new Premier of South Australia, Peter Malinowskis. And um, Leah, what kind of response and uh, ramifications have there been for the Liberal Party in South Australia after such a strong defeat? Yes, well, obviously it was a pretty devastating defeat for the government on election night. Um, Stephen Marshall, now the former Premier, gave a speech to the party faithful that were gathered at their um, post-election celebration. It was remarkably upbeat. He talked about the um, things that he believed his government had achieved in the four years. Um, But yes, since then he hasn't done any public speaking apart from a bit of a um, grab to media waiting for him as he came into Government House this morning to resign as Premier. But he did put out a statement yesterday saying that 
as the leader, he does take responsibility for um, the party's loss. He plans to step down as leader as soon as they can assemble a party room meeting. And it'll be a real reckoning for the party as they look for who is now going to be the new opposition leader. There are a few names that um, have been bandied about. And one that hasn't been in the mix, of course, is the Deputy Premier Dan Van Holst Pelican, um, because he has lost his seat, um, his seat of Stuart. So there have been other questions around... Um, other senior MPs, David Spears, who was the Environment Minister um, under the pre now previous government, John Gardner, who was Education Minister, but no one um, of those people have officially put their hat in the ring yet, and it's whoever it is, it's going to be a big task to rebuild the party after this loss. And Leah, just finally, what are the federal implications of this South Australian result? Well... I'm sure many people will be looking closely and going sort of booth by booth, electorate by electorate and overlaying it over federal electorates to see um, how that might translate at a federal election, you know, which of course could be relatively soon. There has been some commentary about the Prime Minister being absent from this campaign. I'd say that's not completely accurate. He did visit um, once slightly before the campaign officially started and then once during the campaign. Um, but in South Australia, I think the main seat that everyone will be looking at will be Boothby. And I think after what we've seen in this election, you can probably um, expect a fair bit of focus on that one booth here in the state, uh, one uh, electorate here in the state. Leah, thank you. That's uh, South Australian state political reporter Leah McLennan joining us there from Adelaide. Well, to New South Wales now, and New South Wales has launched an inquiry into the catastrophic floods that devastated parts of the state three weeks ago killing at least five people. The inquiry will examine the initial response to the emergency as well as the state's long-term preparedness. Thousands of people in the flood zone still can't move back into their homes, especially in the Northern Rivers region. David Sparks reports. In parts of Lismore, the flood rose as high as the roof of a two-storey house. The carnage was so great that three weeks later, people are still sleeping elsewhere, coming back each day for the recovery effort. It is so big. You can't see a minute part of it on a, on a TV coverage or anything. It is gobsmackingly uh, huge. Matt Mason lives and works on Elliott Road in South Lismore. Since the disaster, his street has been lined with head-high piles of debris, destroyed household goods and furniture, lathered in mud. All we've been saying for three weeks really is, boy, we'll feel better when that, that rubbish is gone. You know, I, I stood out here the other morning and uh, yelled out, and, you know, it was pretty eerie. There wasn't, there's not one house in my street that's, that's being occupied by anyone. It's quite a quite a busy little street. Every house has got a pile and, and no one's in, in living in any of those houses. The pile in front of Matt Mason's house was finally cleared away this morning. Now the New South Wales government has announced an inquiry into the disaster. It'll have a wide scope examining how prepared the state was for such a disaster, the handling of the unfolding emergency, the recovery effort and other issues. Paul Toole is the acting Deputy Premier. This is important because what we've actually seen is a catastrophic event. We need to make sure we're looking at the causes. We need to make sure that we're better prepared 
and we need to look at the response and the recovery. The inquiry will be led by former Police Commissioner Mick Fuller and the state's former Chief Scientist and Engineer Mary O'Kane. One of the most anticipated parts of the inquiry will be the rescue efforts as the floodwaters hit. Hundreds of locals in boats swung into action to rescue people off their roofs because the SES and other authorities didn't have enough personnel or equipment. Matt Mason, who was rescued from his roof, welcomes the examination, but he's not among those criticising the authorities' effort. I know I can't be critical because it was so large, you know. Man, I don't know. You know, I don't know what the answer is Mm. to improve it, only because of the sheer scale of it. To the south of Lismore, Woodburn was also hit with flood water up to people's roofs. Alex Clark is a resident and a business owner there. He's still flat out with the recovery. You just get up every day and there's heaps to do. And it's it's not only like I'm, I've got to clean up a house and a business. I'm dealing with insurance companies. So like it, there's an enormous amount of work. The other thing which is sort of taking up our time is that uh, we all need temporary accommodation and uh, some of us have got it, some of us haven't, some of us are staying at friends' places. It's really complicated. Virtually the whole of Woodburn is uninhabitable. So does Alex Clark see a way the rescue could have been better handled in Woodburn? I doubt it, to be honest. I mean, the thing is that it was so quick and so massive and the on the on the... Monday night, we were rescued by a private boat off our balcony. Uh, the SES was operating, and but they couldn't have done everybody. It would have been impossible. For now, people in places like Woodburn and Lismore are putting one foot after the other, trying to get their towns back into a livable state. You know, I'm just like everybody else in this town. There's a, a bit of a joke now. How are you going? And the answer is same as you. <laughs> that, <laughs> That's the joke, you know, we're all in it together, we know we're all in it together, we know we're all going through a difficult time. That's Alex Clark there, resident and business owner in Woodburn in northern New South Wales, David Sparks reporting. On ABC Radio, right across the country, you're with us on The World Today. Overseas now, and there's been no let-up in the Russian assault on several cities across Ukraine, despite Western intelligence reports suggesting that the offensive has stalled. In the latest diplomatic manoeuvrings, Russia is urging Ukrainian troops defending the strategic port of Mariupol to lay down their arms and leave via humanitarian corridors but the proposal has been quickly rejected by Ukrainian authorities. Barney Porter reports. Olga is one of the lucky ones. The 27-year-old was seriously wounded while sheltering her baby from shrapnel during a missile attack on Kyiv. I was wounded in the head and blood started flowing, she said, and it all flowed on the baby. I couldn't understand. I thought it was her blood. My husband was taking her away. I was screaming, she's covered in glass and blood. He tells me, Olga, it's your blood, not hers. Her husband, Dimitro, was also wounded in the missile strike, but remains defiant. There's nothing left for us to do but stay positive, he says, just to believe that that was the worst, the most horrible thing that could have happened in our lives. We stay positive and believe in our victory. 
Mariupol in the east has suffered some of the heaviest bombardments by the Russians. Many of its 400,000 residents remain trapped in the city with little, if any, food, water and power. Andre dug a grave for his neighbour in the middle of a street. I hope there will be some sort of reburial, and this is just temporary, he says. The military told us to put the bodies somewhere in the cold. The only cold places now are basements, but there are people in basements. So bringing the dead next to people is just... So we bury them here. Greece's consul-general in Mariupol, Manolis Andrulakis, was the last EU diplomat to leave the port city. What I saw, I hope no one will ever see, he says, and unfortunately cannot be justified. I say it with sadness. What is happening in Ukraine is a tragedy for the Russian and the Ukrainian people. It's a wound that will be difficult to heal. He also says the city is joining the ranks of other places known for having been destroyed in wars of the past. Guernica, Coventry, Aleppo, Grozny and Leningrad. Yet the resistance across the country continues. The Ukrainian military has released video it says shows the front line near Kharkiv with Ukrainian tanks firing at Russian positions. And confidence remains high. We have everything, says this Ukrainian soldier. We have javelin anti-tank weapons. We have all we need. Ukraine's diplomatic offensive is also continuing. The latest country to hear President Volodymyr Zelensky's plea for more help is Israel. Addressing the Knesset via a video link, he said Israel will have to live with the choices it makes on whether to help protect Ukraine against the Russian invasion. The president's message at least struck a chord with some people watching on a giant screen in Tel Aviv. More support, but not more guns. That's Barney Porter reporting. Well, back home, the Prime Minister has announced an immediate ban on the export of aluminium or alumina to Russia. The decision is in response to news that Russian-owned company Rusal was preparing a shipment from the Gladstone refinery. Rusal and Rio Tinto share ownership of Queensland Alumina Limited, which is the biggest employer in Gladstone. Locals are now seeking assurances that their jobs are safe. John Daly has the story. The world's tightening the economic screws on Russia as it continues its invasion on Ukraine. And on the weekend, Australia targeted mining exports to Moscow. The Prime Minister acting as a ship prepared to dock in the Queensland port of Gladstone to collect a load of alumina bound for Russia and potentially for use in the Russian war machine. That boat is not going to Russia with our alumina. Last night, we put the sanctions in place which will prevent that from occurring. The government has imposed an immediate ban on Australian exports of alumina and aluminium ores, including bauxite, to Russia, which will limit its capacity to produce aluminium, which is a critical export uh, for Russia. Russia relies on Australia for nearly 20% of its alumina imports, likely making these new measures a significant economic blow. But there may also be economic repercussions locally, especially in the Queensland city of Gladstone, the home of the aluminium refinery, jointly owned by Rio Tinto and the Russian company Rusal, which was founded by the Kremlin-linked oligarch Oleg Deripaska. 
The refinery is a big local employer and the Gladstone Regional Council's Deputy Mayor, Khan Goodluck, hopes the government is aware of the consequences any disruption to the refinery would have on local working families. Rio Tinto between Queensland Illumina, Yarwin and the Boyne Smelter um, would probably employ directly and indirectly about six or 8,000 people, if not more, uh, between all the contractors and suppliers. So uh, it's, it's of huge importance uh, to our local economy. There's many, many people and their families that rely on these facilities. So, uh, and I know that our federal government, state governments will be, will be making sure that that's at the forefront of their mind. At the same time, uh, it is tragic what's happening in Ukraine and, and our thoughts go out to, you know, particularly our Ukrainian community in our own region. Um, so we need to make sure that, you know, from a global perspective, we're doing what needs to be done. But at the end of the day, just minimising those impacts to our to our workers. In a statement this morning, Rio Tinto again says it's cutting ties with all Russian businesses and the continued operation of its Queensland Illumina Limited joint venture was a priority. The ABC understands it's now up to Russell as to whether it steps back from the business partnership. The move to impose further sanctions has been applauded by transparency advocates like Clancy Moore from Publish What You Pay. Australia's mining, oil and gas sector should really benefit Australian communities and we would be very concerned if any mineral or oil or gas wealth was benefiting the war in Ukraine. So this is a good decision and sends a strong signal that Australia's resource sector really should benefit communities and not uh, the war effort. This export ban follows sanctions against Oleg Deripaska and another oligarch, Victor Vexelberg, who also have business interests in Australia's mining sector. Clancy Moore says the situation shows there's a need for more transparency in Australia's resources sector. Australia's resource sector should be much more transparent. Unfortunately, without greater transparency, we don't actually know who benefits from mining gas and oil projects and where the money goes. And I think this example shows that more transparency is needed to really shine a light on who benefits and uh, who really, you know, benefits from our from our resources sector. That's uh, Publish What You Pay director Clancy Moore ending that story from John Daly. Well, calls for Australia to speed up its move towards electric cars and clean forms of transport have often centred on the environmental benefits. But defence analysts argue the shift is needed from a security point of view, saying Australia's heavy reliance on imported oil is a major strategic weakness. Energy reporter Daniel Mercer has this story. For John Blackburn, the sound of an electric vehicle starting is a welcome one. The retired Air Vice Marshal says EVs can do more or less anything a conventional car can. Just as importantly, he says charging one doesn't directly use a drop of oil, almost all of which is imported into Australia. We're not only dealing with foreign companies, we're actually dealing with foreign governments. And we're buying a lot of our fuel off China, the country that we're worried about. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has thrust energy security into the spotlight around the world. John Blackburn says Europe has left itself dangerously exposed to strong-arming by Moscow through a dependency on Russian oil and gas. He says Australia's near total reliance on foreign oil is just as big a security weakness. Our average stock holdings, for example, of diesel across the country about three weeks. So if you don't get something sorted in three weeks, everything stops. Most of our logistics is by diesel powered trucks, farming, 
moving fuel for jets, uh, that, that moves on diesel power trucks. It has to be a significant interruption, but there are certainly scenarios where that could happen. Michael Shoebridge is the Director of Defence, Strategy and National Security at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. He says renewable energy promises to strengthen Australia's national security and greening the transport industry will be a vital part of the process. So it turns the current vulnerable energy supply into a positive because it's much harder to disrupt a strong local renewable energy system. Despite the upsides of cleaner energy for the military, he notes there'll be challenges. High-end weapon systems like joint strike fighters, super hornets, hunter-class frigates, all of the things that are in the Defence Force inventory right now and will be for decades from now depend on energy-dense fossil fuels. There is a path there, though, for renewables, which is to produce alternative liquid fuels that are produced through renewable energy. Alana McTiernan is the Hydrogen Industry Minister in Western Australia. She says weaning WA off imported fuels makes overwhelming sense given the state's importance to the national economy. What's more, she says Australia has a chance to become a net exporter of the fuels of the future. If we just looked at that immediate task of replacing that diesel, uh, that vulnerability can become such a benefit, reducing our direct costs, reducing our vulnerability, but also improving the comparative advantage of our, our agricultural mineral products because of their reduced carbon footprint. Retired Air Vice Marshal John Blackburn says Australia faces a clear choice. We need to have a think. Are we still happy to be purchasing as much of our fuel off the Chinese government on the one hand, and that's growing over time, and on the other hand, we're talking about buying nuclear submarines because they are a threat. I mean, there's a bit of a disconnect. That's retired Air Vice Marshal John Blackburn ending that report from Daniel Mercer. Racism is a big problem for First Nations Australians. Studies show it can even lead to serious health problems. Now, there's an official register for Indigenous people to log experiences of racial discrimination. Call It Out is an Indigenous-led initiative which will collect data in hopes of telling the true story of racism in Australia. Carly Williams reports. Ash Dolstrom is a Gamilaroi Ngarrabal man. The criminologist from Western Sydney University is proud of his culture, but unfortunately has to put up with experiences like this. I was in Moray and um, I was routinely pulled over by the same police officer just consistently. Even there was one day where it was just two times in one day, which is just absurd. And every time I'd ask why you're pulling me over, they'd just be like, it's a random breath test. And I'm like, Really, Brad? It's 8am in the morning on a Monday. Ash Dolstrom is relieved that today, for the first time ever, First Nations people will be able to log their experiences with racism with a new online reporting tool, Call It Out. I wish I had this register because then I could have reported it each time it happened. Because I think it turns out experiences that are often dismissed into irrefutable data. I also think having this will discourage racism in the workplace. I don't think I've ever worked anywhere where there wasn't any form of racism. It really affects like our overall like mental health in our household when we're told these things like don't <laughs> aren't happening. It feels like we're being gaslit. 
Developed by Jambana Research and the National Justice Project, the Call It Out register also allows anyone who witnesses racism against Indigenous Australians to make a report. It's an alternative to the current legalistic process for reporting incidents of racial discrimination. Distinguished Professor Larissa Berendt is the director at Jambana and says the tool is already being used by high-profile First Nations people. So Senator Lydia Thorpe has been the first person to use the register. I think she provides an excellent example of somebody who has experienced an ongoing onslaught of racism. There are many reasons why she might not want to go down a formal path, but it's really important that her story and experience is shared. So the register provides a space for us to make sure that those kind of instances and what she's experienced have some place where they're recorded. Professor of Criminology at Jambana, Chris Kaneen, explains the register is modelled on existing initiatives for other minority groups. There's an Islamic phobia register, which has been running for several years. We know that the Jewish community has uh, ways of recording anti-Semitism and so that they can report on increases or decreases over the years. And more recently, there's been work setting up uh, a way of reporting in relation to anti-Asian racism. And so there's a kind of an irony there in a way that racism against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, is extreme, and we know that, and yet there was no way of actually systematically recording the nature of it or its frequency or or intensity. The data will be analysed and converted into an annual report so leaders can explore targeted measures to counter racism. Ash Dahlstrom describes racism as a national crisis one that Australia needs to face up to. He's logging onto the register today. He hopes it's the beginning of a change for the better. And it's a huge problem because you can't resolve a national crisis and racism is a national crisis. And if you don't admit that there's a national crisis, then you you can't resolve it. That's criminologist Ash Dolstrom speaking to our reporter Carly Williams there. That's all from the World Today team for this Monday. Join us again at the same time tomorrow. I'm Sally Sara. Take care. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. In a heavily fortified bunker in the capital, Kyiv, the Ukrainian president is leading the country's military operations and successfully galvanising his people in the face of the fierce Russian assault. Today, ABC Four Corners reporter Sarah Ferguson takes us inside that bunker. Look for ABC News Daily on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.